Well, hello, Christ Chapel. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And get a copy of your sermon notes. Hello to all of you at the West Campus, South Campus, uh, Converge, and all of those joining us on the Internet Campus, wherever you may be. It is such a privilege to tell you to open your Bibles and to be able to open the Scriptures with you. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things just real fast before we uh, jump into 1 Corinthians. Uh, please continue to pray for Afghanistan. You know, you heard last week what we're doing with that. Second, please continue to pray for specifically the state of Louisiana. Uh, we are ready and uh, nimble and agile, ready to go in uh, and with a disaster relief team uh, when we are necessary and when that uh, is available for us to to go into that state and do anything that we can for the sake of Jesus. And so, but please continue to pray for that state. And uh, if you'd like to join in, uh, you can certainly get some information on the website about how to volunteer if you wanna be a part of that disaster relief team. Uh, second thing you've been hearing about the past few weeks about this QR code on the back of your sermon notes. Uh, there's, uh, we are now voting today. Uh, you should have received, if you're a constitutional member, an email to vote for all of the elder and deacon candidates uh, that you've been seeing for the past month. Uh, that voting ends today at 1230 so that we can, Lord willing, affirm those men at the business, uh, the annual meeting of the membership at one o'clock today in the sanctuary. So if you didn't receive that email, you can get one of the paper ballots outside of your venue. Uh, and so please get that and turn that in before 1230 so that we can uh, finish that uh, at one o'clock. Okay, uh, now is the, the fall season and school is all starting up. Of course, you know that. But one of the things that comes along with school are school colors. Uh, you start noticing groups and packs of people traveling in the same color t-shirt as they uh, support or represent their same school. And it got me thinking about, you know, colors and those different things. And I, I know I'm weird, I have categories for my favorite colors. And I know that's strange. But personally, my favorite color, personal is one category, personally my favorite color is blue. I just, I like blue. It's very easy on the eyes, it's very uh, calming. It's not green, I know that you expected since I'm a Baylor Bear that it would be green. Now you would guess then that my least favorite color, you'd be right, is purple. You know, it's just, <laughs> you TCU folks are easy to get. I actually love you guys. We, hey, we need to become best friends here with the Big 12 falling apart. Um, <laughs> we're gonna become best of friends. No. Purple is fine, but one category I have is personal favorite colors. The other category that I have are professional favorite colors. My professional favorite colors are black and white because in my profession, I like it when things are black and white. I like it when things are cut and dry, clean and clear. When the answer to every question is yes or no. When you can say, Cody, should I do this? And I go, you know what? There's a scripture that says you should, or there's a scripture that says you shouldn't, which means that my least favorite color professionally is, can you guess it? Gray. I hate gray. I hate it. It's, gray is hard. Gray means that, yes, there may be scriptures that speak to those issues, to those on the fringes, but gray takes discernment. Gray takes thoughtfulness. Gray takes consideration. Gray takes time. And guess where most of our lives are lived as Christians? In the gray. 
not the black and white. Now, certainly there are black and white issues in Scripture. We've covered a few of those specifically the last uh, two weeks when we did the mature audiences only. There are plenty of things that are black and white in Scripture, and we want everyone to know those, and we will continue to teach those things black and white from this pulpit. So don't, don't be afraid. But the gray things... There are a lot of gray things and, and areas that we encounter in our lives on a daily basis. So let me um, go ahead and dip my toe in the water. I will go ahead, let me just say this, I'll probably offend each of you equally today as we talk about these gray areas, but, but let's talk about some, okay? Let, let's, just, let's just go, we'll start easy. Music. Should Christians listen to secular music? Is the answer yes or no, or is it, it depends? Uh, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna go progressively deeper here, all right? <laughs> movies. Should Christians watch rated R movies? Now you're starting to feel uncomfortable, okay? I'll back off a little bit. What about Santa Claus? Easter Bunny? Halloween? Should Christians participate in that? All right, let, let, let's go a little bit further. Public school, private school. Should Christians be, should they be in one or the other? Is the answer yes or no? Or is the answer, it depends. Tobacco. Alcohol. Masks. and I'll touch the hot stove and then run away, vaccines. Is the answer yes or no? And now, now let me say this. All of you have an opinion about each of the subjects that I just mentioned. You might even not only have opinions, you have preferences that you hold as convictions. And guess what? I do too. For all of the things that I just mentioned, I have, for, the most, for most of those, pretty strong opinions and opinions and convictions that guide my own family. So I, I've got them. And guess what? I'm free to hold those. You are free to have those opinions. You are free to have those preferences. You are free to have those convictions. But there's a point at where your freedom ends. And we get into really dangerous territory when the opinions, when the preferences, or even what we may consider convictions are held over or held against other believers in Christ in divisive ways. When we take gray issues and we make them black and white issues, that's when we get into dangerous territory, and that's when our freedom ends, and that's what we're gonna talk about today from 1 Corinthians chapter eight and nine. Now, I know we're gonna cover a large, large portion of scripture, but you'll understand why as we go through it. But what I wanna do from 1 Corinthians eight and nine is I want to give you some principles of how to navigate the gray issues in our lives today. 
Now, some of these principles will apply to you personally, but these will also apply to us corporately as a body because remember, what Paul is trying to do here in 1 Corinthians is unite the church. They are dividing over preferences. They are dividing over opinions and even some things they hold as convictions. And what he's calling them to be is the body of Christ undivided, to keep the main thing the main thing, to allow grace to govern the gray. And that's what we hold as a core value at Christ Chapel, is grace manifested in loving relationships because we allow the grace to govern the gray. Where scripture is gray and where it allows freedom, we allow freedom. We don't make gray issues black and white because when you make gray issues black and white, you, you become legalistic. And you start gauging people's spirituality based on their preferences, their freedoms, their convictions, their opinions on the gray areas in life. And we're not gonna become legalistic. We're gonna be gracious with one another so that we can be the body of Christ undivided. And so I wanna give you some of the principles that Paul uses to show you that God wants us to use our knowledge about him to live for him. God wants us to use our knowledge about him to live for him. And I'll go ahead and, and beat you to the punch. To live for him means to live together. That, that's what that means. To live for him means to live for his purposes and to live together in the body of Christ. And so you're gonna see this from, from chapter eight, and chapter eight is gonna begin with a question that the Corinthian church asked Paul. Asked Paul about, hey, what should we do about this? If you remember, uh, beginning in chapter five, Paul started, well, really beginning in the first of the book, he started addressing specific issues that had, he had gotten word back about issues that going on in the Corinthian church. But then he begins answering some of the questions that they had asked him. And that's where chapter eight begins is with a very specific question that they ask him, but then he gives them principles to help guide their answers to those questions. Notice he's not going to answer their question yes or no. He's gonna answer their question in it depends. Look at chapter eight verses one to three. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, that was the question. Should we eat food offered to idols? We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, though, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, guess what? He does not yet know as he ought to know, but... If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now stop right there because in verses one to three, he's going to give you the principle and then he's going to apply it the rest of the chapter. And I'll, I'll break down the rest of chapter eight, but you've got to understand the issue at hand. So the issue at hand was food sacrificed to idols. When people would go to the grocery store in that day, much of the meat that was sold was sold in the marketplace from meat that was sacrificed to idols. So if there was a bull that was being sacrificed, they would sacrifice the bull, they would take the parts of the bull that they needed to sacrifice, then they would take the rest of it to the market and they would sell it. 
And so the question is, as a Christian, should I eat that meat that I know was sacrificed to an idol? Now, as you can imagine, just as in our world today, there are two camps. There's a group that says, no way, Jose. You should never eat that meat. And then there was another group that says, absolutely, yes. You, should, you, you are free to eat the meat that is sacrificed and offered to idols. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you uh, one of the answers, or really the answer in black and white to that question. The answer is, yes, they were free to do that in Christ. Yes. And the yes camp was right. But guess what? The no camp was right as well. Now, I've totally confused you. But the issue that Paul is going to address in chapter 8 he's going to begin to address the yes group. That's who he's talking to, is the group that says, we have freedom to eat this meat. And the reason why he's going to talk to them the rest of chapter eight is because the attitude in which they had and held their answer was one of arrogance. And it was an attitude that was dividing the church. If you notice what he says here, if you look back at it, he says, hey, we all know that we possess knowledge. And what the yes group was saying is, listen, we should all in the church know that idols are nothing. That there is only one true God. Everybody should know that. And so therefore, we all have freedom to eat that meat. Because a meat sacrifice to idol is nothing. It doesn't matter. That, that's not real. But the way that they were saying it, they were holding it over others' heads in a very arrogant manner. That's why he says, knowledge, this knowledge that you have, it's puffing you up. It's, it's making you big-headed, to be literal. It's giving you a big head. It is puffing you up. It's making you arrogant. And you're looking down on your brothers and sisters going, what's your problem? Don't you know? You're so, you're so weak in your faith. You should know better than that. You should eat this meat. This meat is just fine. Come on, filet mignon, carne asada, you know? Let's go. Let's go out to eat. And it was puffing them up, making them seem and appear. And they were probably even enjoying looking more spiritual than those brothers and sisters in the no camp. And that's why he addresses them the rest of this time. In fact, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, guess what? He does not yet know as he ought. Oh, you think you have the right answer. You actually have one of the right answers because the person in the no camp is right as well. And I will show that to you in just a moment. You see, the issue at stake is that maturity is not marked by what you know but how you use what you know. That's what real maturity is about. It's not just having the right answer, it's using the right answer in the way that God wants. So let me go through the rest of the chapter and break that down for you. You see, first, what you've gotta understand, and this is the yes camp, is that knowledge of God gives us liberty to live by his truth. 
This is where Paul is going to, uh, in, in fact, affirm the yes group and say, you're right. You have the wrong approach, but you're right in your answer. Look at what he says in verses four and six. Therefore, as to the eating of good uh, of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, the Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, now this truth, we would want all Christians to know, right? Can I just get a head nod? Right? This is, this is the right answer. We want all believers to know, grasp, and understand that there is one true God, and anything else is false. That, that is black and white, okay? And to grasp that and to understand that and therefore be able to apply that shows some spiritual maturity. That, that's great. We want everyone to know that. But we don't want that knowledge to be used as a club over the head of those who first either don't know that or don't know how to grasp that and therefore apply that. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, I know, I know this is complex. That's why I, I, I want you to follow along. He's trying to help them understand we are all at different levels of grasping truth and applying truth. So they have the right answer, it's just the wrong approach. They had big heads. He wanted them to enlarge their hearts for their brothers and sisters who were in the no camp. You see, what he was trying to tell them, and he goes on in verses seven and 10, he says, listen, your knowledge of God gives you liberty, but it does not give us license to flaunt our freedoms. It doesn't give you license to flaunt those freedoms in front of your other brothers and sisters. If you look at verse seven, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So he says, food isn't really gonna make a difference. What makes a difference is the conscience. But take care that this right of yours, he's talking to the yes group, the one who has the freedom, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged basically to do the same if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so what Paul does here in these three verses is he gives the yes group the perspective of the no group. You see, the reason why the no group was saying no to eating food sacrificed to idols is because they had lived in that world. They, they, were, they were sacrificing meat to idols. 
They were worshiping idols and then they come to know Christ. And what they want to do is they want to turn as far away from their old life as possible. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we know that. You probably, hopefully, Lord willing, even remember that in your own life. When you came to know Christ, you wanted to turn toward him and to turn away from your old life and to not have anything to do with it. That was the no group. The reason why they weren't eating food sacrificed idols is because that was the life they were coming out of. They didn't want to go back to that. And so were they right to say, no, I shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols? Yes. Of course they were right in that. That would have made them stumble. That would have made them go back to their old ways. And Paul's trying to give them this different perspective to consider the no group. I'll give you an example of what this might look like today. Uh, I came to know Christ when I was 16 years old. It was the very end of my junior year in high school. And as soon as I came to know Christ, I, we listened to music back then, kids, on things called CDs, okay? They were these round, compact discs, okay? When I came to know Christ, I gave away all of my CDs. Everything from Garth Brooks to Metallica, okay? Everything was gone. I, I gave it all away. And I remember my buddy, he took me, who led me to Christ, my buddy went and he took me to a, a Christian bookstore and I bought a Bible and I bought two of the cheapest Christian CDs I could find there. And we got in the car and we listened to Christian music. He let me open up my new CDs and we listened to, to those Christian CDs. Now, I want you to imagine that this guy, Matt, I love you, thank you for leading me to Christ. I want you to imagine that we get in the car and right after I just came to know Christ, after I get my Bible, I, I, I'd given away all my CDs, I get these brand new two Christian CDs because I want to focus on Jesus. I just came to know Christ. I want to focus on him. Imagine if we get in the car and Matt goes, all right, buddy, friends in low places. And he pops in the CD. And I go, uh, uh, huh? Now, is there anything wrong with friends in low places? Is it a sin to listen to that song? Okay, see, so you're split on that question right there, all right? Which is Paul's point is that you've got to consider others when you make your decision about living in the freedom that you have in Christ. That's why Matt says, buddy, you pop in your CD, your brand new Christian CD. I'm sure it was cheesy, but I loved it. And it spoke to my heart. Now today, I would love to listen to my Garth Brooks CD that I gave away. But you know what, that's okay. Because at that time, what I needed was Christian music. I was part of the no group. I wasn't listening to secular music, and I didn't for the, my first couple years in, in Christ. And then I grew in my maturity. I grew in my application. I grew in my knowledge of that kind of stuff. And I understood what it meant to have freedom. Now, if somebody else now says, Cody, I think we should only listen to Christian music. What should I do? I should probably listen to Christian music, which is where Paul goes in the next couple of verses. You see, your knowledge of God leads us to love others by limiting our freedom. 
Our knowledge of God leads us to love others by limiting our freedoms. You might have the freedom in Christ to do X, Y, or Z because of your knowledge of him. But what Paul is introducing here is don't get so myopic about what your freedom is, but pick your eyes up and think about how your freedom is affecting the brothers and sisters around you. Look at verses 11 to 13. Remember, he's talking to the yes group here. These are the ones who think they are very mature in Christ. And so by your knowledge, verse 11, this weak person, if you exercise your freedom in front of them and don't consider their conscience, is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you don't only sin against them, you sin against who? Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That is radical. That is radical not only for believers, that is radical for Americans. To say that you would limit your freedoms I know some of you are already picking up pitchforks. I, I know it. But what Paul says here is that he, if he is going to cause his brother or sister to stumble, considering their conscience, considering where they are in their walk with Christ, considering what their weaknesses are, if he is going to make them stumble, he is not only defiling their conscience, he knows that he is sinning against Christ because Christ died to not only save us, but to join us and make us one as his body of believers. And he knows it's so severe to cause a brother or sister to stumble that he will stop eating meat forever. Go totally vegan, vegetarian. I am offending Texans. Do you see how radical this is? To consider somebody else's conscience and therefore potentially limit your freedom so that you don't cause them to stumble in their walk with Christ. What he's introducing here is a principle that we call the weaker brother principle. Now, none of us want to be the weaker brother, okay? But we've all been there if we aren't there now. I've been there. I just told you a story about how I was the weaker brother in, in my CD story. I've been the weaker brother before. And we've got to consider other people when we exercise our freedom. That's what he's talking about here. If we don't consider them, we could cause them to stumble. I'll, I'll give you another illustration. Let's, let's imagine that it's, about, let's say it's 8 p.m. at night, eight o'clock. That's, that's getting to be, that's, that's pretty close to um, Hayes's. Hayes is Jen and I's five-year-old, okay? That's, that's getting real close to his bedtime. Now, let's imagine at 8 p.m., he and I are sitting and we're, we're watching a little TV, you know, right before we're about to go to bed. And I go, you know, I want some ice cream. Now, do I have freedom to have ice cream. 
you better darn sure say yes. Yes. I have freedom to have ice cream, okay? Now imagine I get up and I go and I grab a bowl of ice cream. I bring it back to the couch. What do you think Hayes is going to want? A big bowl of ice cream. And I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to go, no, buddy. (laughs) Sorry. It's your bedtime. What do you think he's going to do at that point? He's going to do probably three things. First, he's going to go, dad, please, can can I have some, please? And he's going to beg, okay? Begging, it's bedtime. You can't. I can. You can't. He's going to beg. Then he's going to cry. Okay, now, now, I've, now I have hurt his feelings because I will not give him something that he cannot have. Then what he's going to do next is he's going to go to the freezer and get the ice cream himself and he's going to disobey. I'm just telling you what he's gonna do as a five-year-old. Now, now I've caused a rift between the two of us. Why? Because I brought ice cream to the couch right in front of him. Who caused the problem? Is it Hayes? Hayes didn't cause the problem. I caused the problem. But wait, hold on. You had every right to have ice cream as the dad at eight o'clock. And if you want to have it at midnight, you can have it at midnight too. I can have ice cream whenever I want. Yeah, but shouldn't I consider the person sitting next to me on the couch? I think so. Or I'll even give you a more serious example. I have a great buddy who struggles with alcohol. I am so proud of him. He is crushing it, doing so great. But imagine he and I go, we're we're gonna hang out. Where do you think I'm gonna ask him to meet me? You think I'm gonna ask him to go meet me at a sports bar to watch a football game? Probably not. Okay, that's just not wise. That's not considering him. Now, do we have freedom to go sit there? Absolutely. But how am I helping him grow in his relationship with Jesus? You see, we've got to have other people in mind and in our consideration when we exercise our freedoms in Christ. This is why I titled the sermon, Where Freedom Ends. We don't wanna think about where freedom ends. We wanna think about where our, our freedoms are and how we can exercise those to the limits, to its maximum. But our freedom ends when it causes us, you can write these down, it causes, when it causes us to sin, when it causes someone else to sin, or or when it pushes into their conscience. When you start pushing their conscience beyond their spirit-given limits of what they have the capacity to understand and apply, your freedom ends. And I know you don't want to hear that today, but that's what we've got to consider inside the church. When we consider how do we help brothers and sisters grow. That's why we, as I said in the first point, using our knowledge of God to live for God. Because God wants to help us mature. That's why he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love for other people builds them up, grows them up, edifies them, encourages them shepherds them, yes, shares the truth and the knowledge that we have about Jesus, but does it lovingly, does it patiently, does it in a way that they can understand it and gives them great limits where they can apply it. 
And the reason why I'm covering two chapters here is because in chapter 9, Paul gives personal examples of how he applies this to his own life. And that's why I'm just going to summarize these for you, and you can go back and read chapter 9. But Paul gives us personal examples of limiting his freedom in chapter 9, and I'm going to look at specifically verses 1 to 23. He forfeited certain rights in order to focus on God's calling. He says, I have the right to take a believing wife. I have the right to eat food and drink, eat whatever I want. I have the right to earn a wage from you as a church. I have a right to to do that. But guess what? I am going to forfeit all those rights so that I can serve you effectively and wholeheartedly. He endured others' maturation process so a stumbling block would not come between them and Christ. In fact, he, he's, he uses the word endure there in verse 12, where he says, I will, I will come to and slow to your pace. I will endure where you are, being patient, careful, and kind with other believers. And then he goes on, and, and verse, really it starts in verses 18 all the way through 23. But he met people where they were rather than expecting them to be where he was. He met them where, he says, to the weak, I became weak. This is where he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To to the Greeks, I became a Greek or a Gentile. Like I met them where they were. I came to them and where they understood to help guide them along and shepherd them rather than expecting them to be where I was in my knowledge, in my application, in my maturity. And by the way, where does he get this example? Where does he get this? Understanding all this? Don't miss this. He gets this from Jesus This is Philippians chapter two. This is Philippians chapter two where Christ, knowing, knowing, go back and read it later today, knowing he is equal with God, decides to take the form of a servant, to forfeit his freedom to stay in heaven, to take on human flesh, to endure with us, to meet us where we are rather than expect us to meet him where he was because we could never get there and to lay down his life for us. Paul is only living out the example of Jesus inside the church that we're told in Philippians chapter two. And so here's the application for you and me today, because Paul ends this section exhorting the believers there with this metaphor about a race. And what he says that we need to do is limit our earthly freedoms for an eternal reward. And when I say an eternal reward, I'm not just talking about uh, the, what we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this, this wood, hay, stubble, straw, those precious stones. I'm not just talking about that. I'm also talking about people. People coming into eternity with you that maybe you limiting your freedoms could lead to somebody else coming to know Jesus and changing their eternity forever. And he gives us this example from the last three verses in chapter nine. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control so that or lest, after preaching to others, I myself should not be disqualified or should be disqualified. So this is the analogy that he uses is, folks, we're in a race. We're in a race, and we've got to discipline ourselves to run effectively. That's what limiting your freedom is. There's so many, I'm glad the Olympics were just on, so you saw the Olympians competing. That's the analogy that he has here in the Greco-Roman world. They were doing the exact same things. And he uses some of these analogies to apply to us as believers when we talk about considering other people and limiting our own freedoms ourselves. So let me give you three very quick things. The first, decide to run your race intentionally for God. You've got to decide. It comes with an, this race comes with an initial decision. If you are in Christ, you are in the race. I, I want you to hear that. I, I have yet to see an Olympian get a medal on the couch. You are in the race. And you need to run it intentionally. And, and one of the biggest reasons why is somebody's watching how you run. So get off the sidelines. Start running intentionally your race for Jesus. Second, discipline yourself remembering that what is permissible is not always beneficial. You might have freedom, but is that beneficial? It might be permissible, but it's not lifting up, loving, building up, exhorting other believers, edifying them in Jesus. And while we're on the metaphor of the Olympics and they train their muscles, let me just say this very quickly. Christians, one of the muscles that we need to discipline most is our tongues. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control, and we need to control our tongues. And you might say, I'm not saying anything. Okay, what are you typing? Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, only, only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If we could just do this, our world would be a better place. But let our church be that better place. Okay? Can I get an amen? Okay. And finally, deny certain freedoms to help fellow racers so you do not disqualify them or yourselves. Would you consider how you can help other racers run their race? so that you're not disqualified or disqualify them. You know, in, in this idea of a race, when I watch the Olympics, everybody has their lane when they're running, correct? Let's just imagine a 100 meter sprint. Everybody has their lane. If you are running your race and you get outside of your lane, guess who's disqualified? You are. But I also have watched it enough to know that if you get out of your lane and you're disqualified, what do you have the potential to do? Trip up somebody else. Let's be so in tune and in step with the Spirit 
that we're willing to forsake our freedoms for the sake of others so that we ourselves are not disqualified and we don't trip anybody else up. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortation that it gives us. And Lord, I know that a message like this is not necessarily black and white, but Lord, may it lead us to consider others the same way that you considered us. And I thank you that you give us the example of Jesus, but you also give us the Holy Spirit to inform us, to guide us, to empower us to do these very same things that you're calling us to do. Lord, you lay down your life for us. Would you give us that same mind of Christ that we would lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters so that we run this race as to win the prize together. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.